This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. And that's Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Dr Daniel Goleman, made the term emotional intelligence world famous in his 1995 book of that name. And he's continued to be one of the leading advocates of the concept in the many years since. His new book, Optimal, co-authored with Rutgers professor Carrie Chernis, explores the application of emotional intelligence at work and in leadership. Here's his conversation with Hannah McInnes. Can I start by asking you about this uh, title, Optimal, but more how to sustain excellence every day? People's immediate reaction to, to that might be that it sounds quite a stressful goal. Excellence every day, uh, you know, is something that many of us perhaps just think sounds much too much of an effort to sustain. You know, if you think of excellence as your very best performance ever, uh, the time you were in flow, for example, I think it is too high a standard. What we're talking about as excellence is having a really good day at work. For example, uh, being very engaged, being absorbed in what you're doing, being very productive, having uh, small wins toward a larger goal, solving problems that come up, connecting with the people around you and feeling good. Uh, that's, uh, that's what you might call having a good day. And I think that's a more reasonable goal. That's what we mean by excellence. And is that what you mean to define by optimal, that word? The word optimal um, is a handy way of talking about such a, a day. And the data for it comes actually from Harvard Business School, from a study where hundreds of men and women were at, asked to keep a log, a journal, of how they felt that day, how things went, how productive they were, how they solved problems, what they call small wins toward a larger goal. And the composite portrait that emerged was of an optimal day, feeling good and doing well. So you've, you've mentioned a day uh, here. You've, you've talked about a day where you do everything to your idea of excellence, to your optimal, but presumably, if the goal is to have an optimal day, it's also to have an optimal life in doing so. I suppose you could extend it, and I think that it's uh, a natural impulse to do that. So if you know how to be engaged, how to pay attention, how to empathize with other people, the people in your life, the people you care about, I think that it would extend to your life generally, absolutely. So who, who then is this book for? Anybody. Everybody. I think so. Yeah. And I think it's important to ask, as you ask in the book and you both question, why now, why this theory now, the theory of 
seeking an optimal day, an optimal life. Um, is it something that coincides with the world in which we're living, increased digitization, perhaps a post-COVID world in which we work in very different ways? You know, uh, surveys show that loneliness, for example, is higher than ever. Uh, people feel more isolated. I don't know about in the UK, but I have many friends here who work, say, two days a week in the office instead of five. And uh, there's a lot of zooming and transactional, uh, in, you know, interplay. But what we've lost is the kind of easy socializing that happened when we were seeing friends more often, when we were at work uh, with our workmates because you got to know people in a way that I think doesn't occur. So uh, I think it's in that context. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr made a very important distinction. It was between the things in our lives that we can change and the courage to do that and the things that we can change that we have to put up with. And many of us have to put up with an existence, whether it's at work or in the conditions of our life, uh, which aren't optimal but we can do the best we can within that. And that's what we're encouraging people to do, to take control, not to let the circumstances of your work life or your life generally dictate how you feel, but to be more active, more proactive in terms of uh, being sure to do the best that you can internally, that will show itself externally. Yes, I mean, and there's so it is such a it is a book full of practical tips and advice, uh, and nothing is forever. If you think listening that you're not a certain person and you can't be a certain way, you show us that actually everything is flexible and malleable uh, in our characters. So let I mean, just before we move on to that advice. There are just, I think, some clarifications that you make at the start of the book. And perhaps most importantly is how this links with emotional intelligence, which it does. Um, how optimal and living in the way you advocate making every day uh, feel a success links in with the capacity for an emotion, for emotional intelligence. Well, let's talk about first what emotional intelligence is. There are four parts. The first is self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling. Often we don't even pay attention to what we're feeling. Knowing how those feelings uh, shape your perception, your thinking, your impulse to act. Uh, that's emotional self-awareness. And I think it's very important. It's the keystone in emotional intelligence. From that, you can then manage your emotions better. And by manage emotions, I don't mean control or subdue. Emotions are important messages. They're telling us what uh, what's going on in our life. But if our emotions are upsetting us, if we're waking up at two in the morning and ruminating about them, then they're out of control and we may want to manage them better, be more resilient. Actually, resilience means uh, the time it takes to go you go from peak upset to back to calm and clear. And not only uh, the second part of emotional intelligence is about how we manage emotions, it's not just the rocky emotions, it's also uh, keeping in touch with our sense of meaning and purpose, what matters to us, what motivates us, what our real goals are in life, not being distracted from them. The third part of emotional intelligence is empathy. 
uh, understanding how the other person thinks about things, the language they use. Uh, by the way, AI would be very good at that. But then something AI don't think would be good at, it's resonating with people emotionally, knowing how that person feels because you feel it too. And then the third part is really important. That's caring. It's called empathic concern. It's like a parent's love for a child. You care about the person. You not only know how they think and feel. And then the fourth part is putting that all together in managing relationships well, effectively, harmoniously, or settling differences, for example. So the, that's what emotional intelligence is. And the data that we have uh, shows that for example, when a company looks through its lens at emotional intelligence, one of the things it values in employees is what they call engagement. Well, actually being absorbed, being involved, that's one of the components of that good day. It turns out, as we show in the book, that uh, from a, a, an organization's point of view, that good day that we feel is what they want, and it correlates very highly with emotional intelligence. Can I ask uh, from your perspective how you feel the idea of emotional intelligence has changed since it first came into common parlance? Because of course, you say in the book um, that there are of many controversies now over you know what it means within the field because it is so widely used. And of course the similarities as you've just laid out, but how has it changed or how has society changed because of it? Well, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, Emotional Intelligence, it was very little direct research. In fact, it was a brand new idea. Since that idea became very widespread, there are many, many different models of emotional intelligence. Uh, most of them agree on those four parts, but how they fill in those parts is very different. So I would say one of the big changes is that uh, there are different schools of thought on emotional intelligence, just as, by the way, there are different schools of thought on IQ, which has been around for more than 100 years. Emotional intelligence is a relatively new idea. We wrote this book now. Uh, my co-author, Carrie Chernis, and I uh, were co-directors of a research consortium on emotional intelligence. We wrote the book now because now there's a critical mass of data showing that uh, this helps people in their lives. It helps them at work. It helps managers and leaders be the kind of boss you love instead of the kind of boss you hate. By the way, I've asked, <laughs> I've asked organizations and, and groups around the world, tell me about a boss you loved and a boss you hated. And it doesn't matter where you ask. The answer is, I want an emotionally intelligent boss. I don't want one who's tuned out, who doesn't care, who's aloof. Uh, and People leave bad bosses. So one of the ways uh, I think that bad bosses are hurting organizations and businesses is by pressuring people to get results instead of inspiring them and motivating them to get those results. So this means that uh, people are burning out when they shouldn't be. And they're, the best people are more likely to quit. I mean, when I listen to you say that, the immediate question, which I expect you get asked a huge amount, which you don't necessarily address head on in the book, but is, are, are women generally better at generally more emotionally intelligent than men, or is there no gender divide in your research? 
You know, when you talk about gender differences in behavior, you're talking about two largely overlapping bell curves. So women generally tend to do much better than men uh, on uh, elements like um, empathy. We talk to girls about relationships. We talk to boys about things generally. So they're socialized differently in our culture. Uh, women tend to score better on tests of emotional intelligence. Uh, than men do, but uh, this is largely because of women's social skills, which are better than men's generally. But it doesn't mean that any given man couldn't be as good as any given woman on social skill. And men tend to be better, for example, than women on handling upsetting emotions. But it doesn't mean that any woman, any given woman, couldn't be as good as any man at handling those emotions. And you talk a lot uh, in the book about how to differentiate and why it's important differ to differentiate between the type of engagement that you're trying to teach your readers how to um, learn. And another thing that is talked about more and more, and I'm sure our How To Academy listeners uh, and viewers will know about flow state. But it's important, isn't it, to differentiate between what you're advocating and hoping to bring into people's lives. It's very different from flow state, which is often something very hard to grasp and you can't predict when it's coming. Well, yes. So flow is that one time you outdid yourself at whatever matters to you. And it, it's uh, not something you can predict. It just happens to us and it's wonderful, but it's very rare. So uh, we argue that it's not helpful to expect to be in flow uh, any given day, that it's better to uh, try for what we call the optimal range, which is below flow, but still very good. Uh, and it's something you can do, something you can get better at, or you can, there are ways, and I hope we'll talk about how to do how to get into that optimal Let's state. Let's talk about that then. So the ways in which we do that are very much in sync with the ideas of emotional intelligence, the, the pillars that you've outlined. And the first way that you encourage uh, and advise people to, to help, help get into the optimal zone is through what you described as self-awareness. It's the personal that we address first, if I'm right. Uh, and one of those important key pillars of that is self-awareness. So could you explain what self-awareness as you describe it looks like and, and why it's so important? And, and then we can go into your self-awareness helpers. Well, uh, you could say it's self-awareness. I think of it as focus, which is an aspect that's like applied self-awareness. The question is, uh, what's on your mind right now? You know, when they did research at Harvard where they uh, gave people an app that rang them at random times of day and asked, what are you doing now? And what are you thinking about? People were actually distracted about 50% of the time, up to 90% at work, meaning you're thinking about something else. So what the first uh, avenue, we believe, into an optimal state is to pay full attention. There are many uh, so-called mindfulness techniques now that are popular. Actually, they're really attention training. When you get used to or train your mind to notice when you're distracted and bring it back to a point of focus, that is an extremely valuable skill. And it means you can become absorbed in what you're doing right now. 
And we find that that is a key to getting into your optimal state because it means you're fully engaged, you're fully committed, you're fully involved in what you're doing. And the rest of it comes as a concomitant. So perhaps you could give us some tips as you do about how to do that. How how do we, uh, you know, attention train? How do we put things into our lives so that we become absorbed, so that we're aware, which is what you're talking about so consistently, so that we're aware when our thoughts drift and we know how to refocus our attention? Well, you know, the... The good thing here is that the brain operates the same way your muscles do. You know, when you go to the gym, every time you do a rep with a a weight, a repetition, you're making that muscle that much stronger. It's the same with our minds. Every time you bring your mind back from being distracted, you're making the neural circuitry for uh, focus stronger. So there's a simple exercise. Uh, You can do it anywhere, anytime. I recommend doing it maybe five, 10 minutes, whatever you can afford before you go to work, for example, before you start your day. And you might, you can do it this way. You pay full attention to your in-breath and to your out-breath and the space between the breath and again with the next breath. And then when you notice your mind has wandered off and it will, I guarantee, when you notice it's wandered, you bring it back to your breath. That is the mental repetition that builds the neural skill of paying full attention to what matters right now. And you want to bring that with you to work or whatever matters to you during the day. So on a practical level, perhaps I could ask, your recommendation is that that's a practice. You you compared this to exercise. That is the similar similar thing to going for a run in the morning or or doing your weights. And that sustains you throughout the optimal day. It isn't that every time should, you know, should you repeat that through the day or is that an exercise, a training? How do you draw on that when you need it? Well, you know, you go to the gym once a day. I would suggest you try this because what you're doing is building mental fitness and it happens gradually. It happens slowly. You're not going to have a magical first day. I did this. Uh, It was better. It's going to happen slowly and if you work at it steadily. So I recommend starting with five minutes and extending it to whatever is comfortable for you, whatever you make time for in your day, but make it a priority the same way you make your physical exercise a priority. Uh, And this is going to help you at work, just as getting physically fit helps you through the day. This mental fitness will help you pay more attention to what you need to be doing right now. You also talk about a very important aspect of this, which is um, checking your self-talk. I've actually spoken to a lot of people about this recently. It feels like a very um, worthy recurring theme. In some of the interviews I've been doing lately, I was interviewing a, a, a psychoanalyst talking about this very small number of words we use to criticize ourselves, And he said it's an actual affront to our intelligence. How can we do something about that? It's very important that we do. So your self-talk refers to that ongoing monologue we all have inside our, our head. And when that self-talk is critical of something you did or about to do or your abilities generally, it's very destructive. Uh, as any therapist will tell you. And so uh, 
you can reframe your life, you can reframe your performance and say, instead of what did I do wrong? What can I learn from what happened to do better? And what do I do right? In other words, look at what's working, not just focusing on what's not working. You also talk in the book about um, the added value of self-awareness, a a sort of second application of self-awareness further than what we're discussing. And perhaps you could explain that. Well, yes, there there are two elements here. One is tuning into what uh, the neurologist Antonio Damasio calls somatic markers. Gut feeling. Gut feeling. Uh, because it turns out that our life experience is stored in a part of the brain that has no direct access to uh, the part of the brain that thinks in words. It has lots of connection to the to our GI tract, as you say, gut feeling. So does it feel right or does it feel wrong? Uh, this is really important for staying on track and also for seeing uh, is what we're doing helpful or not. So uh, each one of your points, I feel we could probably spend an hour on and, and very happily have at least four hours discussing this. But in the interest of time, um, you also talk about uh, beyond self-awareness, again, on the personal front, you talk about self-management. And what does self-manage? This is where you talk about the ability to uh, manage yourself, to have strength and self-control. What does self-management look like and how does that help us to have an optimal day and an optimal life? Let me clear up one common misconception, which is that self-management doesn't mean no emotion. It means appreciating emotion and being aware of when emotion, for example, sadness or anxiety or anger is overwhelming and being resilient. We can't determine what we're gonna feel when we're going to feel it, how strongly we're going to feel it. But once we have a feeling, we have a choice point, which is, are we going to let that feeling run us? If it's very ups- if it's passion, motivation, if it's a positive feeling, sure. But if it's highly negative, if it's disturbing, uh, if we can't stop thinking about it, that thing that upsets us, then it's better if we're resilient. And resilience means technically the time it takes you to recover from peak upset to getting back to a calm and clear state, which is facilitates that optimal that we've been talking about. Uh, And so uh, self-management means on the one hand, not letting your upset overwhelm you, managing it, but also remembering what has meaning here for you, Where's your sense of purpose? What matters to you about what you're doing? What motivates you? Uh, Can you see the positive, as I said before, rather than just zoning in on that negative self-talk? All of this is part of self-management. And you talk about the importance of a, of a skill we perhaps gain as we grow older, but many of us and, and, you know, don't necessarily manage all that well, which is to leave a pause and time between your first impulse, whether it's anger or upset or whatever it might be, offense, uh, and and your reaction. You know, uh, Danny Kahneman wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, about system one and system two, as he called it. One of them is very fast, 
and can get us in trouble. Uh, and one of them is relatively slower in brain time. And that means we can be more skillful in what we do. And you've put it very well. I think we need to pause uh, and be sure that what we're about to do is the more skillful response. I'm going to hope that I can articulate a quandary I have when I was reading this chapter, which is you advocate, of course, you, you talk about the marshmallow experiment and the importance of not acting on impulse and having that self-control. And you say that if you have that, you may not be um, so prone to anxiety and worry. But I feel like actually there are a lot of people who have an enormous amount of self-control and actually that enormous amount of self-control leads to uh, them being prone to anxiety and worry because it sort of forms a sense of a perfectionism. Uh, it's not a relaxed quality in a lot of people, the need to uh, have such a, such a rigid sense of self-control. I, I hope that I've articulated that qu query. Yes, let me clear that up because I'm glad you brought this quandary to light. Uh, perfectionism is what we were talking about earlier when we were saying you focus on what you did wrong, not what you did right. In fact, there's a leadership style where people who are perfectionists, that is, who drive themselves like 120%, do better and get promoted to a management position, but they don't know how to lead. They just see other people through that same critical lens. So they give critiques, failing grades, not positive grades. And if you do that with yourself, if you're a perfectionist, uh, it is very debilitating because you don't appreciate the good side. You don't appreciate what's helping you. So I think that managing self-talk or monitoring self-talk and seeing, am I doing that again? And when you say enormous self-control, perhaps you mean uh, someone who's suppressing emotion, which I don't think is helpful at all. I think it's just monitoring, watching the emotion to see when is it debilitating and what can you do about it, rather than removing all feeling, which I don't think is helpful in the, in the first place, because you need your motivation, you need your passion, you need to care. Uh, and these are all emotions that are very helpful. And uh, before we move on, I suppose, to empathy, which obviously forms a huge part of this, and bringing others in and pers into personal relationships, and just um, really interested by the changes we spoke about earlier in emotional intelligence and the language around it. You talk about uh, the word grit that is essentially a large relabeling of of the achieve competence in your model and what do you make of, of grit how important is this idea of having a sense of grit and persistence if you're going to attain a large goal whatever it may be for you uh, you need to persist you need what uh, has been called grit and uh, from my point of view it's the the goal to it uh, rather the motivation to achieve a goal. And this is part of self-management too, because every day is going to bring distractions and, you know, the crisis of the day. The question is, can you keep moving toward that larger goal? One of the elements of that optimal state or the, op the good day at work is that people have small wins toward a larger goal. I think this is very important. You're not going to achieve it overnight. 
It's a large goal, but you can do something daily or most every day that moves you closer to it. So is it fundamental to this sense of optimal and to have an optimal day that you are enjoying what you do? One of the elements of that good day is you feel good. So uh, if you feel good, I was talking to someone about customer experience, for example. If you encounter someone uh, in a store, a retail clerk or a call center, whoever it might be, who's having a bad day and treats you in a way where they communicate that emotion to you. And by the way, emotions are very communicable, very transmittable. Uh, it's going to make you feel bad. If you encounter someone who's having a good day, who feels good, they're going to make you feel good and you'll feel better about that company or that organization. This is fundamental. This is a positive function uh, in a business, for example, of people being in that optimal state. And one of the things that strikes me about the optimal state is that it's it's a circle of positivity. So instead of a vicious circle, uh, once you, one element clicks into place, the, the rest sort of rolls on. I would call it a virtuous circle. <laughs> a virtuous circle. I was looking for that because we're told we have much more negative words in the English language. And I know the vicious circle is often used. And I was thinking of the virtuous circle. Well, what you're talking about now really is leading in, isn't it, uh, to empathy. And we all have an idea of what empathy is, but you, you clarify these emotions and these feelings and these ideas better than most. So what is the empathy that we are seeking uh, sure. in order to reach an optimal state? I think that there are three kinds of empathy, uh, and they seem to be based in different parts of the brain. One is cognitive empathy, understand uh, how you think about what's going on, the labels you use to yourself. Uh, this is empathy that AI could be very good at because it's a language model. This means you can be very effective at messaging. However, there's a second kind of empathy uh, which is very different. That's emotional empathy. That means I know what you feel, I feel it too, or I sense it. I resonate with you. And this is very positive in terms of keeping our interaction uh, on the same page, so to speak. And the third kind of empathy is technically called empathic concern. It means I care about you. And I think it's maybe the most important. Uh, I worry about AI, for example, because uh, they're not programmed to care necessarily about the well-being of people. Uh, and in a relationship, in a close relationship, especially your spouse, your co-workers, your boss, your friends, you want this kind of empathy and you want to show it. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that perhaps that's a reason not to worry about AI, the fact that they can't do this? And the fact that they can't do this means that we shouldn't fear them entering the workplace in the places where this is so important. Uh, that's, a, I think, a rather utopian vision for AI. 
which I don't really agree with. I think that AI should be programmed to care uh, because otherwise it could be very destructive. Okay, so that's interesting. You think that that is the way to deal with AI is inevitable, therefore, come and it needs to be programmed to care, and that's possible. There's a debate in AI circles about this right now, and I don't know which way it will go. And in terms of how empathy, we've talked about uh, how important empathy is, what it is, but as with everything in the book, there are ways to boost these qualities. So how do you advocate then that someone who knows that empathy is something they need within their workplace, which is everybody, I, I would say, uh, and they feel perhaps it's not a quality in which they are strong. What are your methods of, of boosting empathy? So first of all, you have to realize we almost never get feedback about how other people actually feel. We imagine how they feel. So one of the correctives is to try to get that empathy, you try to get that feedback rather about how a person is feeling. You can ask someone, we rarely do, uh, but you could say, uh, you know, I sense you're feeling X, is that right or not? That already tells the brain something we don't orally know. And there's a larger lesson here, which is that emotional intelligence, unlike IQ, is learned and learnable. And we can enhance it at any point in life that we're motivated to do. So I have a Daniel Goleman emotional intelligence online program. That's one way. Uh, there are many ways. Many companies, for example, offer emotional intelligence programs to help people become better. So when it comes to empathy, I think the, the prime way to boost empathy is to do what the brain hungers for, which is to get feedback and to see if you're right or you're not. You remind me of a part of the book that I highlighted with interest, which is, of course, that emotional intelligence, you said, you know, you can learn it at any stage of your life. And you also write that emotional intelligence, in fact, perhaps improves with age. Emotional intelligence uh, seems to improve with age. People, as people mature, they become more calm, more in charge of their lives, hopefully. Survey data seems to show that emotional intelligence, unlike IQ, by the way, uh, does improve with age. Uh, and, and just mo moving back to a question, in fact, I addressed at the very start, when you talk about the importance of feedback um, and these relationships that are so important to establishing empathy and to understanding empathy, it makes me think again how much I question what the world of work, which has changed so much in the last few years, does to that and the ease of that because so many of us now do not work in a place where we interact in person with other people. You know, what has that done to emotional intelligence, to empathy, to relationships in the workplace and the way, and the way we work and, and, and what the future looks like in that sense? Yes, to the extent that we don't spend five days a week with our co-workers, very few people do anymore, uh, that uh, we don't have the naturally occurring opportunity to get to know them. We don't go out for a drink after work. We don't have lunch together. We don't find out about other people's family situation. Uh, and it, that's very, very important in terms of empathy because you, you understand the whole person. You sense more of the person at any rate than you can if you only on Zoom, for example, it becomes very transactional or you just have two days a week in the office. Uh, rather than five. So I think that 
what's happened is that the way we work together is thinning out uh, the kind of naturally occurring empathy that happened in the old format. And how do you think that we can compensate for that? Or is the only way to encourage getting back to a, a workplace environment? You know, I, I think that uh, it behooves us to reach out to people that matter to us, to, you know, have a phone call or get together apart from the work situation and ask about the person, not about the job, but what do you want from life? What do you want from career? You know, just the kinds of things you'd want to know about another person uh, that we no longer have the opportunity to ask in a, a naturally occurring situation. Well, before we started talking, I did say to you that our How To Academy viewers and listeners um, have such perceptive questions. And I, I hope I might have time to come back to some more of mine at the end, but I'm reluctant not to ask them. So I'm going to just uh, just jump in because um, someone who calls himself RS says, thank you for this brilliant dialogue. I'm learning a great deal. Please could Daniel elaborate on how AI is effective at the language of empathy? A real world example or practical example would be very helpful. I mean, I think you said it needs to learn, but perhaps you do have examples. Well, you know, AI is a learning machine. The fact that it's a machine means it has zero emotion. It can only imitate what it's like to have emotion. When it comes to language, uh, AI is extremely proficient. So I, uh, I don't know that I can give off the top of my head a real life example, but anyone who uses AI knows it can be really fantastic at uh, imitating the language of someone about some topic. It's instantaneous. Whether it can resonate emotionally, I don't know, but I think AI can learn to maybe read emotion from tone of voice or from facial expression. Those are uh, channels that express emotion uh, and then to imitate someone who's empathic and empathic in all senses, not just the language sense. Uh, Sarah, a very good question, which I, um, I know people will be interested in how organizations cultivate a culture of emotional intelligence amongst their leaders and ensure this is sustained. I mean, a brilliant question. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for asking that. In fact, much of the book is about exactly this. Uh, because we studied a few uh, case examples of companies that were, uh, in terms of their culture, quite emotionally intelligent. And one thing we found was that they had a visible champion from the business side, not from the resource, you know, the human uh, resources side. Someone, for example, a senior vice president who said, this matters here. And they let that be known in, for example, uh, their selection process. So people would self-select. They'd want a company that was emotionally intelligent. They also embedded it in the performance review. It wasn't just, did you hit your numbers for the quarter, but how did you get them? Did you burn people out? Did you pressure them? Uh, did people hate you? Are the most talented going to leave? That's the bad way. Or did you inspire people? Did you influence people? Uh, did you coach people? That's the better way to get the best performance, to get people into that optimal state. And uh, they also offered training programs, training that works, not just like, um, you know, a two hour seminar, but an ongoing practice in some element that a person wants to get better at of emotional intelligence. Those were all 
uh, typical of the emotionally intelligent organizations. And by the way, one of the companies we looked at, uh, I don't know if it's in the UK, it's in the States, it's called Progressive. It's, it used to be insurance, it's financial now. Uh, and um, they had a champion of emotional intelligence and the director of their customer relations unit, which actually was all of the insurance agents. And he said, you know, we're in a relationship business. This really counts. And their uh, profit was uh, just increased extraordinarily during his tenure. Do you think uh, overall society has got better at this? I I, I feel um, positive that workplaces are more sensitive and empathetic than perhaps they used to be. I hope you're right, but I'm not sure. I think it's quite uneven. Uh, you know, emotional intelligence programs have been introduced in many schools, but the way they're implemented makes all the difference. If you don't have a teacher who cares about it, it's not going to work. Uh, if you don't have a boss who cares about it, it's not going to work. And I would say that the uh, forces that determine the culture of a company are multiple. And uh, emotional intelligence may or may not be part of it. So I guess I'm not as sanguine as you are. Uh, well, Peter asks if there are exercises, and another good question, I'm sure many of us will be interested to hear your answer, to help us to pause uh, and inhibit that knee-jerk reaction we were talking about earlier. You know, it's called uh, technically cognitive control. It's the ability of the brain to manage impulse. And if your uh, impulse to act is very, very strong, uh, it may not operate well. So uh, practicing pause is part of developing attention, uh, of developing that focus, because the pause is built into the ability to see some, a thought or an impulse as a distraction and to go back to what you're focusing on. So I would say that exercise I described where you pay attention to the breath and when you notice you're distracted, you bring it back, will help you also with the pause and remembering about the pause, <laughs> particularly in the heat of a moment, is going to help too, but that may not always occur. But I should bring in here, because you also address really large issues at the end of the book that can cause more um, sort of anxiety than perhaps a knee-jerk a sense of worry, things like climate change and poverty, political corruption that we look around and see and that really do trigger emotionally many people. Um, how can you improve, how, you know, how can you use emotional intelligence to, to feel calmer in the face of those sorts of things that we have no control over or we feel we have no control over? Well, uh, let me uh, first talk about what makes us angry and then what makes us anxious. I think what makes us angry, for example, is corruption. Uh, maybe the, the rich poor gap getting larger. Uh, and here my model is the Dalai Lama. He says, anger is a useful emotion if you remove the hatred and you keep the focus and the motivation and the persistence and channel your anger in a positive reaction. Uh, this is very similar to what Danny Kahneman would say about thinking fast and slow. The anxiety uh, of climate change, which is greater among younger people, uh, I think is very, very important. And one uh, way I look at this is to use our present economic system, whether you feel it's fair or not, in a kind of judo, 
I argue that uh, people now are blind to how the, th the things we do and buy and use are uh, creating great uh, problems and disturbances, not only in the climate and carbon, but in terms of biodiversity, uh, palatable, uh, potable drinking water. Uh, you know, there, there are eight great systems that support life on the planet, almost all of which are being degraded by how we live. And what I'm saying is that smart companies will be uh, more transparent about ways in which they're improving things versus their competition, which may not be doing that. I think this will become a competitive edge as things go on. And hopefully one day the lines will cross and the improvements being made uh, in how we make and do uh, will uh, start to lower the cost for the climate. Andrew says it's a privilege to hear you in person. I've benefited and used your teaching professionally over many years and now I'm retired. Does your research share any insights about optimal performance, emotional intelligence in the third age? Well, as I said, uh, we tend to get wiser uh, with age. We tend to become more emotionally balanced with age. And I think that the, the, uh, the third part of life after retirement is a wonderful time to do something that helps other people. I suppose an anonymous attendee says, um, and I'm sure this again is is a is a issue and a consideration for many. The idea of being open and honest is a very uh, 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 one we all want to to achieve and, and and a way that we all want to be. But um, this person says, "What if I'm hesitant to be open and honest at work because of a fear of losing my job, or the fear maybe being criticised, or you know being told that you shouldn't speak your mind, which many many people feel inhibited like that at work." Yes, and I think that's quite right. Remember, I made a distinction between what the things that you can change and the things you can't change and have to adjust to. And I think a, an atmosphere of fear at work is maybe something you can't change. The question is, hey, why let them dictate how you feel? Why don't you take control over your inner life, how you feel at work? Yes, I think the two things there, uh, you don't let others control the way you feel. Um, and also this sort of serenity prayer, essentially, you've mentioned quite a few times to control and and be be able to control what you can, but to let go what, what you can't. Um, Antonio says, thank you so much for such a brilliant and inspiring talk. It's a joy listening to you live. I'd like to ask, with so many training and leadership development programs around the world and on the web, why disengagement and burnout are mounting and still so many bad and low empathetic great leaders around in organizations and outside? Uh, there is a plethora of ways to train in emotional intelligence. As I said, I have my own. There are many, many. However, I think that the portion of people who go through such programs is quite small relative to the portion of people who are suffering from the larger forces at work that create alienation, that create disenchantment, uh, that uh, make it difficult for people in many, many ways. And many organizations pay no attention to emotional intelligence in who they promote, who they hire. Uh, that's a reality. And as I said, you, we adjust to the reality that we have to, and we take control over our inner life. 
Carmen asks Daniel how best to cultivate emotional intelligence in younger generations and in children. I've been a champion for years of what we call social emotional learning. Uh, there's a website, casel.org, uh, which is, uh, says what the best programs look like. And uh, I advocate SEL, but it needs to be implemented well, it turns out. And I wouldn't say to a, as a school system, I think in the UK, you have a uniform system, uh, I, I believe. Anyway, many nations do. I don't think it works to just tell teachers or administrators, you've got to do this. It's better if people adopt it because they believe in it, because it helps them. Many teachers in schools where there are successful SEL programs are happy because kids are better behaved in the class. So it's easier for them to teach what they need to teach. But I think that it should come from within, not be imposed from without. H Hanuman, I hope I've pronounced your name right. Hanuman from Godarmic says, how did the Indian saint Neem Karoli Baba influence your thinking on optimal living, if indeed it did? And how can we use optimal living to reduce violence in the world? So Hanuman must be a kind of insider. Uh, when I was in India, I was with... Uh, an amazing uh, teacher, an old yogi named Neem Kroli Baba, uh, who was fantastic. He was more than empathic and more than uh, centered. He's kind of like a paragon of emotional intelligence, but he's a rarity. And so the question is, how can we spread that capacity? That, this is why I wrote the book Optimal. I think it's important to meet people where they are and to take them from where they are to where they can be. And that's what we're trying to do in the book, Optimal. How, how would you advocate people listening to spread this, spread the word apart from, of course, telling them to read your book? Other ways of, of spreading this idea into the world? I think the most powerful way is to model it. Use it yourself. Um, Marie asks if you have recommendations on how to boost emotional intelligence if living with, and, and I think, you know, two separate things, but autism uh, and CPTSD. This is a very profound question. Uh, and I don't really know the answer, but it may lay in workarounds, uh, in overcoming whatever uh, neural deficit a person may have and finding a way to manage relationships uh, well. Uh, that don't depend on those capacities. Naeem says, um, hi, Daniel, do you think the AI will be able to identify excellence and emotional intelligence in recruitment? And if so, how? A recruitment is very tricky because people always want to look their best when they're going for a job. I think the uh, best way, the best information you can get about a person you're thinking of hiring is to ask people confidentially who have worked with them. Uh, but this is not always possible. So I don't know that AI will be any better than a human interviewer uh, at something that's quite difficult. Uh, you, you just then I actually mentioned something I think, again, is so interesting in the book, which is the difference between the calm, the importance of staying calm and self-aware and managing your emotions, but also the sense that you need a certain amount of good stress and adrenaline uh, to keep you going. And for example, people might relate to 
uh, a feeling that their optimal state is one in which they are quite wired and sort of their their body is quite stressed in a certain way. Where's the balance in that? Well, first of all, recognize there are huge individual differences in our nervous system. I was talking to a guy who used to be a jet fighter pilot, and he said, you know, uh, our reaction time has to be in the top 99th percentile, or, or we don't get the job. And uh, we run on adrenaline. But those are fighter pilots. That's a rare thing. A lot of people uh, make a, a common mistake, which is to assume that you need to be in a wired state to do well, which uh, really I would challenge. The question is, are you focused? Maybe you depend on getting wired to focus, but can you learn to be calm and focused? Uh, so you can think more clearly when you're calm. And that exercise I just showed uh, does two things neurally. One is it sharpens attention. The other is the same circuitry calms you down. So you become calm and clear. I would argue that people can do very, very well uh, if they're calm and clear and may not have to be wired all the time because being wired all the time is not good for you physiologically. It's not good for you in uh, the rest of life. So what are you sacrificing uh, in order to stay wired all the time? To have calm and to be calm and clear, as you as you say, to find tranquility and clarity, focus. Would you say it's important, you, you mentioned turning off your phone when you're doing this particular exercise, but to be in that optimal state, even with others, is it advisable to try and minimize all distractions, music, phone, uh, digital? Do, do you need, is that, a, is that an important focus for, for optimization, for being um. optimal? I think that's important for the practice, uh, but you bring it to life and life is full of phones and noise and distractions. Yes, exactly. So it's about being able to find that with all the distractions of life. And that's the concentration you need, presumably. For example, if you're with someone else, are you really focusing on that person? Or are you distracted by whatever's going on around you? That person wants to feel felt. That person wants to feel that they're listened to, that they're heard. And that demands that you focus on them, not on the distractions. And you say that multitasking is a myth. So also in terms of uh, being, you know, living uh, optimally, as you would advocate, it's better to focus on one task. I say multitasking is a myth because although people feel they do things simultaneously, the brain doesn't work that way. It does one thing at a time. Uh, attention is a defined capacity. We can pay attention here or there or there. We can switch very rapidly. Uh, but if you're uh, very interesting, if you do this exercise, uh, the breath exercise and develop a focus, uh, and then you go to work, say, and your focus is very good on what you're doing, then you get distracted. Oh, my email, are they pinging me or whatever? And then you go, th then you end up, you know, uh, doom scrolling on, on your phone. And then you go back to that task, your attention is now much lower, much less, and you need to ramp it up. Uh, however, if you practiced an attention strengthener that I described, uh, you are much less uh, de if you will, and get back to full focus more quickly.
you're much less thrown by things that would otherwise throw you. Uh, Our time is very sadly up. Um, I reiterate um, our audience's reactions to say it was a a huge pleasure listening to your wisdom, hearing your wisdom, gathering your wisdom. Uh, We're very grateful to you for that. Uh, Thank you so much. And if you've um, signed into this, you can, of course, watch the video back or if you missed anything, uh, you can recommend it to friends. And at some stage in the future, we will also be releasing the conversation as a podcast. Um, But for now, thank you very much indeed to all who signed in Uh, and Daniel thank you so much to you. Thank you for having me. This episode starred Daniel Goldman and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Georgia Attlesey and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Till next time I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.